Hello, and welcome to Lifeside Beat. I'm your host, Jacqueline Cowis. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Oriana Papenzogvi, the CEO and co-founder of AOADX. She is a visionary leader in the field of women's health and diagnostics, and was recently honored in Inc.'s 2022 Top 100 Female Founders for her work in ovarian cancer diagnosis. She is also a proven technical record of creating market entry strategies and product launches in new markets, including launching nationwide HPV screening in East Africa and novel diagnostics in maternal fetal medicine, oncology, and infectious disease. Please join me in welcoming Oriana to LifeSide Beat. Oriana, welcome to LifeSide Beat. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for taking the time. It's really nice to chat and learn about your experience in AOA. I want to start by learning more about your experience. It seems like you come from a multicultural background. You've traveled and lived in different parts of the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that, your upbringing and your experience in the different countries around the world? Sure. Um, so I come from a Hispanic and Middle Eastern background. My mother's from Venezuela and my father is from Lebanon. I was actually born in Venezuela. And then at a very young age, I moved to Saudi Arabia and grew up in Saudi Arabia. And then uh, for high school, I went to boarding school in Switzerland. And from that, uh, I came to college in the U.S. I studied economics and international relations at Boston University and sort of launched my career in the U.S., uh, then worked in Germany for a bit, came back to the U.S. And so I think that's shaped how I think about health and global health generally. Even in the early days of my career, I was responsible for emerging market growth in other regions, um, primarily because of all the languages that I speak. But really, I think my background helped shape having a more global perspective and understanding even today when I develop tools at AOA is how are these tools accessible to different kinds of healthcare systems. And I think also just having the ability to work and live with different cultures um, gave me a perspective that just opened me up to, you know, understanding different ways of working, different types of cultures. And I think, you know, we, we all see the metrics, diversity just outperforms. Yeah, I think my background helped shape that. Yeah, great. And all the places that you've been, do you have a favorite or a place that you like to, to visit often? You've touched a lot of different parts of the world. Uh, I mean, Lebanon is home now, so I love going back. I, I try to go back twice a year to see my family there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my time living in Europe. I have a soft spot for Boston because that's where I went to school and that's where, you know, some big pinnacles in my career were. But yeah, everywhere, really. That's awesome. You mentioned your business background and going to Boston University, but were you always interested in diagnostics and women's health or how did you transition to that? I knew that I really liked the sciences. In high school, I was really good at biology and chemistry and my mother is a physician and where I grew up, sort of your career path was very defined. You either go to school to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, to be an architect. So I came to BU actually as pre-med, as a biochem major, failed miserably as a biochem major. And I think uh, coming to a, a liberal arts school also you know, forced me to explore different avenues, even within the sciences. So from there, I really, I looked at classes in the School of Nutrition, I looked at classes in the School of Management. And what I came to learn was that you could have a career in the sciences that didn't necessarily mean doing research in the lab or being a physician. It was BU that kind of opened my eyes to that. And, and then I started to do internships and really expand my knowledge outside of just the classroom. And from there, one of my first internships in the diagnostic space was at a women's health company. It was called Amnesty International. And they were really looking for somebody who spoke different languages to help translate some marketing material. And from there, I kind of fell in love with women's health. That, my, that internship is where I met my co-founders at AOA Today. Just met some sort of lifelong mentors, colleagues 
eventually really great friends, developed a passion for women's health. And then going back to that global experience, my role when I came on full time was to really target the emerging market. So how are we going to take this test to South America and the Middle East? Um, how do you, how do we apply these tools to different healthcare systems? And so it kind of serendipitously fell into women's health, fell in love with it, and then have had a career where the, in, the, in that sense, I've been purposeful and have just stayed in women's health uh, for the last over 12 years now. Yeah, it's amazing that your global experience helps be that differentiator when you're getting a full-time job coming out of BU. Were the yeah. other co-founders, were they interns that you're working with? No, so Anna was one year out of college and was there full-time already. And then Alex was actually working. So we had a distributor in the UK, which was Alex's family's business. And Alex was working at that family business, distributing the product in the UK. And that's mm -hmm. how we all. Okay. And yeah. then you worked there for a while. And then how did that transpire over to starting your own company? Yeah, no. So I started, so Amnesure, I was there um, and then we went through an acquisition. So we were acquired by Kyogen, which is a large biotech company. And then all of us, all three of us at least were offered roles to continue on in the organization in different scopes. I was offered a full-time role um, to move to Germany at the headquarters and to really expand outside of, of women's health and look into oncology, infectious diseases, still in the emerging market. So how do you grow these technologies? I was working at that time in East Africa, Eastern Europe, Middle East, and I was working from a global health perspective, so really working with a lot of NGOs and local governments um, for broad-based testings of, of a variety of diseases. And at that point, all three of us were working with Kyogen in some scope when one of our mentors and at the time, one of the general managers at Amnesia was going to spin out another company, incubate out of the Harvard Innovation Lab, and was basically putting together like a core founding team. And so we all took the jump and started Parsigen with Ruben and Anthony at the time. Um, they were the founders and we were essentially employees one, two, three, and four and built Parsigen up from developing the technology, going through a class three PMA approval. I was in charge of also having sales outside of the US and then selling Parsigen. And after that exit, Anna, Alex and I sort of turned to each other and said, I think we can do this now. I think we can found our own company. We're so passionate about women's health. We have so much expertise in this. We've seen the life cycle from the inception of a company all the way doing uh, to an M&A and then the post M&A as well. So let's go solve a big problem. But none of us are scientists, right? So none of us are, are PhDs or engineers, you know, um, we all have very different expertise ranging from clinical to regulatory to operations to sales, but none of that is, is science. And so we um, started first by mapping out where are there enormous unmet need in women's health? Where could a diagnostic test bring value to patients, providers, and payers? And so from there, I had mapped out ovarian cancer, endometriosis, preeclampsia, amongst many of just big areas that there was no way to diagnose them today. It was taking far too long, far too costly, and had a huge impact on a woman's life. And uh, then I took to the science. I went to academic offices, tech transfer offices, patents, publications, conferences. And I remember reading a statistic that said 90% of medical innovation stays in academia. And I was blown away by how much impact patient lives could have if we could find a way to sort of pull through this innovative research. Because a lot of the time, academics aren't the ones that are interested in starting a company. So how do you match this? So we went about it really, really meeting with incredible people, meeting with incredible researchers, telling our mentors and advisors what we were up to. I diligenced so many opportunities. I flew all around the country, even to the UK a bit, really trying to find the right product and, or idea that we wanted to work on to turn into a product. Until eventually in December of 2019, one of my advisors was at a conference in Montreal 
She's had a long career at Roche Diagnostics, um, really an expert in developing diagnostics, then had started her own company. And she was doing a presentation in Montreal and she was approached by a scientist and they got the chatting and she got to learning about his research. And she called me and she said, I think I found what you're looking for. Um, there's a professor here who's working on an entirely new class of markers. It's something really innovative and he can detect early stage ovarian cancer. And I was like, okay. And that was the inception of AOA. And, you know, there's a whole story of how we did that and how we partnered with him, et cetera. But it was that phone call that eventually led to us partnering with Professor Saragovi, um, bringing him on as our chief scientific officer and developing uh, the platform and the test that we're doing now. Wow. That's interesting. I, I want to dive deeper into that. So did you have advisors before, like for the company before you went out to seek research? Because you mentioned the advisor from Roche. Did you partner with people before and then kind of go on this pursuit of almost entrepreneurship through acquisition, which is the channel we've learned about whether it's acquiring or licensing different ideas, different businesses, but how do you go about that? Yes, I, I will say there was nothing official. Like we hadn't incorporated AOA. I hadn't signed a single advisory agreement. It was very informal. I just, there were people in my career that whose opinion I really valued. And there were people that I were meeting, that I was meeting through networking that would pick up my call when I asked. And it was as simple as I'm thinking of this idea and incubating this idea. Would you, would you help me? Would you have a call with me? So I don't think I officially, I mean, Nancy eventually came on to be a, an advisor at AOA when we officially incubated the company and sorry, incorporated the company. She eventually went on to invest in AOA. So the relationship was formalized at a later date, but in the early days, 100%, I feel like I surrounded myself by people that were immensely smarter than me that had done this before, that knew what the challenges and pitfalls were that could, and that were open to guiding me. And I think the flip side of that is I was open to being guided to taking feedback and hearing a lot of different perspectives before making a final decision. Mm. Okay. So having that informal network helps you propel forward. It's interesting working with researchers. I've, I worked at the tech transfer office at my time in Michigan. So I've seen a little bit how that interaction goes, but what was like the value prop and how did you approach it to work with the professor? Yeah. So from Professor Saragovi's perspective, he was actually not seeking to develop a diagnostic. He's been developing a therapeutic and a vaccine using the foundational technology. And as a means of patient selection, he had identified a way to use those same mechanics of the antibodies to do patient selection, which in effect was a diagnostic. And so we came to him and essentially we pitched that this is an avenue that you're not actively pursuing and we're not going to take away from your core research or from your core baby. We're going to be a value add here. And where we are a value add is in being an incredibly successful business oriented team that translates from academia into industry. And I think a lot of it, what motivated Professor Saragovi was this idea that his research was actually going to have an impact on patient lives. And that this side thought of his was so impactful. And I think we helped show him that. Like we didn't go in heavy on these are contracts, these are agreements, like this is what we want from you. We started and spent six months building a relationship and a business case of why a woman needed a diagnostic for ovarian cancer why his technology was going to be so valuable to patient care. And after we had his buy-in on why we were the right team, how this was going to have an impact, then we went off to negotiating and say, okay, and these are the terms. This is how this can be lucrative for you as well. It's so important to have those relationships and build upon that and having that trust. So I think building that foundation first is essential to be able to move towards that business arrangement. 100%. As a group, did you think about weighing the options of, okay, do we have to patent this? If it wasn't patented already, do we license this? Do we bring him on as an advisor or another co-founder? How, how do you weigh those different options? 
Yeah, 100%. For us, IP was always at the top of our criteria list, especially in the world of diagnostics. To be able to garner that financial support, especially from the VC community, you need to have a protective moat. And a lot of it comes around IP. So one of the base criteria we had is, is this patentable? And even if there weren't patents, that was not a, something that we walked away from. It's, is it patentable? And then we were we would invest in those patents, which ended up being the case with this opportunity is Professor Saragovi had filed his inventions of disclosure, but actually hadn't patented yet. And we invested in patenting. And then we spent a lot of time figuring out our relationship. Like, let's write, do we bring Professor Saragovi on as a full-time coach? co-founder did he act as our, our advisor or as a consultant and there were very many different options and i think it's, it's a two-way relationship it also comes down to what does the other person want professor saragovi is a renowned researcher and a, and a high position academic at mcgill university coming on as a co-founder in in some way required him also to give up some of his other passions and so what we wanted to do was find a way that this relationship was going to be mutually beneficial you can't take all it has to be a win-win and in that case, we decided that Professor Kusarovogovi was going to come on as our chief scientific officer in an advisory consulting pathway, which allowed him to dedicate about 50% of his time to AOA and 50% of his time to his academic world. We wanted to give him equity in the company because we, we still wanted to make him feel like this was part his and that his commitment to it was also going to be a part of his success. And so essentially, we found a way that works for us, but also works for him, that makes this partnership valuable for both sides, that motivates everybody to work really hard and make it successful. I think having the connection still with the professor and having that scientific backing adds credibility as well, because you mentioned you guys are all amazing operators, business leaders, know how to get it from zero to one, but you're not scientists. So having a scientist on board as part of that helps tell that story. in order. 100%. Especially... In the early days, when you're raising capital as a pre-seed or seed company, and you don't have any traction, all you have is a vision. You need, in the scientific world, you need some kind of scientist to like be on your side and be like, this vision is based on merit and science and not just crazy idea that these three guys have. Hopefully also going the route of diagnostic, diagnostics are usually quicker, ideally, than therapeutics. So maybe yeah. that's also appealing that he could see his science come to life and actually make a big, meaningful impact in a short exactly. amount of time to millions of women around the world. Exactly. He was blown away. He's like, you mean you only need one clinical trial? There's no preclinical multiple trials. You can have this to market within five years. And I said, absolutely. And he was like, I've, I've never experienced that. And I think that that's what keeps him super motivated. Like we're actually recruiting our prospective trial for the FDA right now. And he is blown away. He's not used to that because therapeutics usually take a long time. Oh, yeah. And you have to do so many studies in animal models and preclinical and phase one and phase two. And I'm like, you jump, you, we can jump right in with, with, with uh, you know, with the right diagnostics. Yeah. I want to take a step back. Maybe let's talk about ovarian cancer and, and why ovarian cancer. What's the current status quo and for a woman that's going through this diagnostic yeah. and treatment? Why ovarian cancer is because there is no diagnostic test today, and 80% of women are diagnosed when they're already stage three and four. At that point, the survival rate's only 28% in five years. And so the sad reality is most women that are being diagnosed with ovarian cancer are not surviving past five years. The only way to diagnose ovarian cancer today is through very invasive surgery. So what we know is that over 90% of women experience symptoms of ovarian cancer quite early. The symptoms, however, are vague and nonspecific. They are things such as bloating, abdominal pain, changes in bowel movement, early satiety, feeling full too quickly, right? That could be like IBS or something else. That could be IBS. That could be yeah. endometriosis. That could be pregnancy. That could be a multitude of things. With the exception of like pregnancy and uh, a urinary infection, 
All the other conditions actually don't have a diagnostic test. IBS doesn't, endo doesn't, fibroids don't. And so what we're doing is a process of elimination, right? And in that process of elimination, it's a multitude of tests, a multitude of procedures. There's a, a study that showed that over 13% of women that got diagnosed with ovarian cancer first had a colonoscopy, which is a horribly invasive procedure and very expensive. Yeah, it's like several thousands of dollars. Exactly. And women are just going through so many procedures, so many doctor's appointments. We recently released a survivor's video, which I would encourage everybody to watch, but it really showed the story of these five women, how many doctor's appointments they had to go to, how many months, in one case, Donna, it took her two years to get a diagnosis. The average time in the U.S. is nine months. With the most common use tools in for ovarian cancer being repeat ultrasounds and repeat testing of a blood marker called CA125. Now, the challenge with CA125 only cleared by the FDA for monitoring of residual disease, which means that it valves you live in seeing a trend over time, right? Are the levels of the markers going up or down? For ovarian cancer, a woman would come in, have these symptoms, they test her, they tell her, let's monitor your symptoms, come back again in about three months, we'll retest your ultrasound, retest your blood. And if we see changes at that point, if we have enough reason to believe this could be ovarian cancer, we'll refer you to surgery. The challenge is, and why physicians hate referring patients to surgery with so much uncertainty, is because to detect ovarian cancer just for a diagnosis, just to get a biopsy, a surgeon has to fully remove the fallopian tube and the ovary. And that is a permanent removal. Which completely eliminates the ability for them to have children. It dramatically reduces from one side. Exactly. Exactly. So, but even beyond that, it's immediate hormonal changes for women. It's it's a major surgery for women. And can you imagine the only option you have to know if you have ovarian cancer or not? Is that surgery? And so physicians, they're put in such a hard place. These women are showing up sick to their clinic. They don't have tools. They don't have options. Do I send her to surgery? Do I not send her to surgery? A lot of the time it's wait and see because I, I don't want to send her unnecessarily. But the wait and see has a dramatic effect because ovarian cancer spreads so quickly. It spreads from stage one to stage three in less than 12 months. When we know that the diagnostic process is taking nine months. So that whole time that physicians are really trying to figure out what's going on and patients are advocating for themselves, they just don't have the tools. And so that's when we learn about that, we're like, uh uh-uh, something's got to change here. Like, this is not good enough for women. What can we do about it? Why do you think ovarian cancer does not have a diagnosis or proper way compared to like for breast cancer? We have mammograms. Prostate cancer seems pretty straightforward. Other types of cancer, there, there are a lot of money pouring into it. Why do you think ovarian cancer has not been tapped into? I think a couple of reasons. I think ovarian cancer as has been studied as a really challenging disease. Ovarian cancer is a little misleading in its name in that it actually originates in the fallopian tube. And the way that the cancer grows, um, it's in a very hard place to detect. And they are very, very small sort of mess along the fallopian tube. And so inherently the disease in itself is quite challenging. Um, And then the other thing is that what we experience as well is that generally women's health is severely underfunded and severely under-researched, right? It gets less than 5% of all research across non-dilutive and dilutive funding. I can't count on my hand anymore how many tests for prostate cancer we have. And yet endometrial, we don't have a single one. Ovarian, we don't have a single one, right? And so I think it's a combination of it's a really hard problem to tackle and there's not enough, there hasn't been enough funding to focus on it. 
I know many companies, for example, that have big platform plays and ovarian is one of the options that their platform could detect. It's never a first priority. Hmm. Which is shocking because we're half the population. So you would think that we would have some diagnostics to help that group of people. Exactly. And we have the complete opposite approach. We have a platform play. I could pursue lung cancer. I could pursue colon cancer if I really wanted to. We made the choice to pursue women's cancers. We made the choice to pursue ovarian cancer because not only is there an enormous ROI, do not get me wrong. We're not a nonprofit business. This is not for the good of women only. We are doing this because we know that there is an enormous market opportunity and a return but also because there's an enormous need for patients all over the world. Yeah, I love that. So how do you actually diagnose ovarian cancer? Like what's the, the science? And apologies if I'm asking too many science questions, but- No, not at all. I, um, so I like that stuff too. So. Yeah. Uh, so essentially what Professor Saragovi discovered are a mechanism to detect markers that were um, researched for a long time. So glycolipids are a type of marker that are present on the surface of tumor cells that we know are also being shed into the blood. And they've been in the research for over 50 years. They've been studied more thoroughly in melanoma, for example, again, not, not in a woman's cancer. And Professor Sergovi was actually developing antibodies to treat the cancers as a way, as a cancer vaccine or an immunotherapy to really target them, inhibit them and, and find a way to treat the cancer. As a means of thinking, simply from patient selection, okay, who's expressing these targets to know who would benefit from this treatment? He used those same antibodies that he had developed from a from a therapeutic point of view and started both staining tissue and developing an ELISA, an immunoassay using these antibodies to detect the presence of them in tissue and in blood. And what he saw is that he was able to detect as early stage as stage one in blood samples that his antibodies were very specific and that the presence of these targets were elevated just as much in stage one and stage two as they were in stage three and stage four. Something mm -hmm. that many other markers cannot do. We know a lot about ctDNA, CTC, mRNA, just different blood-based biomarkers that pose different challenges. In the case of ctDNA, circulating tumor DNA, you have to have enough tumor volume for us to be able to see the shed DNA in the blood, okay? In ovarian cancer, that's never going to be the case because the, the volume of ovarian cancer tumors is very low. So in where other markers can continually detect stage three and stage four, they have never been able to detect with high sensitivity early stage. And Professor Saragovi essentially took this really exciting research that had existed and came up with a novel approach of how to utilize it. So the uniqueness is the ability to find a new biomarker and connect that to the disease, like the method. That's exactly right. It's, it's the method of utilizing these biomarkers. And when you think about RIP, right, you can't patent naturally existing markers in the body. You can patent how you utilize them for disease detection or anything, maybe. So now that you have this research, you have the use case, you know what you're going to go after. What is the next thing you do? Uh, how do you start from... Yeah. So the first thing we did was honestly kind of like a business school exercise, right? A 150 page business plan. This was us holding ourselves accountable to being incredibly thorough to the work that we needed to do. We diligenced the regulatory pathway, the reimbursement pathway, the IP pathway, the commercialization pathway. We diligenced everything and got to the point where like, okay, this is feasible. This is hard. It's going to take money. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's feasible. From there, the first, first thing we did was check off all of sort of the legalities. We made sure that we had an option agreement. We contacted IP lawyers and really figured out how we were going to go patent this. And then we went to go figure out if we could get any non-dilutive funding to really 
vet the science a little bit more before we felt confident enough to go out and raise uh, venture capital funding. And so we started with non-dilutive uh, funding, uh, grant funding through Professor Sarah Gobi's lab that allowed us to conduct a larger retrospective study, which was on, on banked known samples. And we had a really good readout. Uh, we had signed an option agreement. We had filed the patent. Uh, and then we went out to raise money. And uh, we went out to raise our free seed, which kind of led into our seed round. We did a few accelerators in the summer. We ended up doing both Y Combinator and Springboard, which focuses on women as well. And then, yeah, the rest is almost history. We've been building a product and now we're doing clinical trials. <laughs> yeah. Which is an oversimplified, let me iterate, it's an oversimplified oh, sure. of the reality. It's, this summer will be three years since we officially incorporated and it's been a wild ride. But when I reflect on sort of where we started, yeah, it just seems a little crazy. <laughs> it sounds like you guys did a lot of different due diligence in all different areas. There's a lot of new at-home testing in the wellness space. I'm wondering, as a short term, while you're waiting for FDA approval and reimbursement, did you consider this kind of cash pay wellness approach that maybe is not diagnostic, but for information only? How did you think about that? And oh, yeah. We thought about it a lot. There is an enormous trend of basically gathering data, um, eventually, you know, having a data asset, um, doing a lot of at-home testing. And the reality is that that wasn't our expertise. We are a team that has sold to doctors and to healthcare systems. We are a team that every product, we've almost every product that we've worked on has gone through FDA clearance or approval. We're a team that has worked hand in hand with the healthcare system, right? And that's not to say the alternatives are not fantastic. But when you're going out on an immense amount of risk, right, starting your own company is so inherently risky, not taking a salary, like putting everything on the line. For us, we wanted to focus on our foundation and our strengths. We were a team that was really good at developing technologies that could go through regulatory approvals, getting these technologies and guidelines and working with pr providers and payers. And so let's leverage what we know in a disease state that is new to us, in a market class that is new to us, right? So there's I think when you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, there's so much unknown that we felt comfortable balancing it out. Like it's, ovarian cancer is new to us, right? The gangliosides and biomarkers are new to us. Um, so many different areas are new to us. And then on the other hand, there's areas that we're good at where we have strengths and we know and are familiar with and combining those two, we felt would give us the best chance of success. So you thought through the, the go-to-market channel and what you're more comfortable oh, yeah. with. I also would say, I mean, I'm not aware of any at-home diagnostics that are like blood-based. I feel like a lot of it's saliva, other things like that. Yeah. I don't know how much blood you would need for this test. I'm imagining it's not a finger poke. It's probably a couple two test yeah. tubes of blood. Yeah. So I don't know how people would do that at home by themselves. I personally yeah. would be a little bit nervous about that, but um, so maybe it's the modality too that makes it more. Uh, absolutely. The modality and the indication. Generally, like in the case of ovarian cancer, you're uh, just... There's, I would say that there's a lot more than just a blood result that goes into a cancer diagnosis. And with the value of sort of partnering with the healthcare system, as flawed as it may be, is that you give providers and patients the best chance of combining data points. I was on a panel a couple of nights ago and they're asking me, what are some positive trends that I'm excited about? And I said, I, I think it's the idea that now we're really, really hard at seeing the power of data in combination and in synchronicity to really give patients the best outcomes. That is combining multiple types of blood mace markers with a physician experience, with imaging, with a symptom index and all of these things to really give patients the best possible 
uh, outcome rather than sort of binary medicine, which was just this one thing led you to do one other thing. How do you think about where to go to market? Like what hospital to partner with, big or small, what state? And, and how do you think about that from like a legal standpoint, operational standpoint? Yeah. So really, really broad. There are generalizations that you can make about physician profiles in about certain states, like without hating on my home state, Massachusetts and New York's are not the earliest adopters. Their bar for like scientific evidence and coming on to adopting something tends to be a little later. In New York's tough. Uh, they have a lot of extra rules compared and to New York has a lot of extra lab rules as well. So you kind of map out based again on your experience, what states and what accounts and what hospitals have been friendlier to innovation and adoption. And you start that far before you start commercialization. So from day one, we were really working on how do we build those relationships with those key opinion leaders who would eventually become our early adopters. Early adopters in the sense that they would be the sites that would become our clinical trials. Early adopters in the sense that those would be the ones that would be advocating for us from the FDA. And then eventually would become some of our first users. Again, going back to building that trust, you want and you need your physicians to trust that you are developing something that is safe, that is accurate, that benefits patients. And in the early days, you don't have the benefit of having tens and tens of papers that are being published, right? But when they get to know you and they know your integrity and they know that in your intent, then they'll partner with you to develop those publications. They'll partner with you to generate that evidence and to speak on your behalf. So I think we start thinking about commercialization from day one, right? Like who are going to be those accounts? How do we bring them on from a clinical trial? And then how do we grow them into users one day? Out of curiosity, are there certain states that you think are like prone to innovation? Who, who are the innovative states? I, you know what? It's providers. Providers who've just gone through residency and either starting their fellowship or their first years in attending typically are excited to try something new, create a name for themselves and be the ones that are kind of eager to introduce something and then be the ones that introduce it as well. So it's just also finding that win-win, finding that advocate who's just who's excited to make a name for themselves and leveraging a new technology could help them do that. You seem to be very good at finding the value prop and building trust amongst the people that you, you work with. This, this is definitely a theme I'm seeing based on this conversation. One other uh, aspect to that though, is the investors. How do you build that trust? Because this wasn't full-fledged product yet. Essentially it's a team and an idea at this point. Yeah. Again, it, you, finding, go back to that theme, it's finding the value prop. Like what, what is in it for them and from their perspective, especially in the early days, a lot of fun um, investment is, can be an emotional decision. It's, they knew somebody or they had somebody in their family that was affected by a disease that took them too soon, whether it was ovarian cancer or something else. Like there was something in our story that deeply resonated with them. But more than that, it's creating that establishment of trust. And how do you create that trust is by doing what you say you're going to do. That's as simple as when you end a phone call and you promise that you're going to send them something, you send it to them. In that line that then translate, when you set the precedent that you're going to send quarterly reports, you send quarterly reports. And when you hit set milestones, you hit milestones. And when something gets in the way and you can't hit a milestone, you communicate. So it's setting a foundational trust that this business is risky. The FDA can throw you a curveball. The technology might not work. But I trust the team enough to figure it out perhaps pivot if they need to, to ensure that the stakeholders maintain a return at the end of the day. And that's what you're establishing in the early days is trust in the team. 
because the number of, I mean, when I was at YC, one of the most impactful talks that I heard was like, how many companies actually pivot from the idea, original idea that they came into YC with? And I was blown away. And I was like, because you commit so much to your investors on something. And the reality is you commit a return to your investors. And if you're the right team, no matter what, you're going to deliver that return. And if they trust you, they'll follow you through that journey. Setting that stage of trust is interesting early on. So before you even ask for money, but maybe you're just showcasing the idea and then you follow up with the email, that builds that trust and the fact that you're going to have a track record of doing what you say you're going to do. So that's definitely exactly. a tip for, for new founders who are cold emailing a bunch of uh, different VCs and hoping for a response, but doing those follow-ups and committing to what they ask for is a good way to kind of build up your reputation and build that foundation of trust. 100%. I also, it's it's obvious that there's challenges being a founder. I think there's even more challenges being a woman founder. I hate to ask questions on this because you don't ask a man how he navigates this, but I guess what I'll ask in general, is there any challenges that you've had that you overcame as a woman founder that you want to impart to future women founders or a challenge that you had that you wish society could fix to make it easier for women to be able to build, create, and establish companies? I mean, to to that second question, I think it's um, check your biases. I think in the earliest days of founding AOA, first of all, the three co-founders, we'll call us young, you know, we're in our 30s, and uh, two of us were women. And I had one investor directly asked and many others not directly asked, like, what are the family plans of your team and how do you, you know, intend uh, to manage the business? And I was like, if there were uh, three men running this company, you wouldn't be asking when they plan to get pregnant because that was inherently the question that was being asked, right? And so to society, so check your biases. It's um, if founders have chosen the life of a founder life, then they'll figure it out and they'll understand what their commitments are and they'll communicate if they need help. So I think that's kind of the first thing that comes to my mind as a young woman that was fundraising early. The irony, which goes to your second question, the irony of that is, as I was being asked that question, I was probably four or five months pregnant because I raised my first round pregnant. Um, were you showing? Could I tell that you were pregnant? I didn't know. I, I was on Zoom. Um, okay. I, I was a COVID. We were a COVID company. We incubated the idea in early 2020 and then uh, officially incorporated in uh, the summer of 2020 and went out to raise our seed round in January 21. Wow. So uh, I was, everything was done on Zoom. Nobody knew that I was pregnant. I delivered my baby halfway through the Y Combinator badge took a few weeks off and then uh, came back to pitch demo day. And I would say that the thing, you know, that I want other women to know or keep in mind is we hold ourselves back a lot because of assumptions that we've made or because of narratives that society has have told us. And if you go after what you want, you have the capability to figure out all the in-betweens. And I understand that sometimes that comes from a place of privilege. I was able to ask my mother to come and move in with me and help me out, right? But I think Anne and I say this to each other all the time because at some point investors, again, did not directly ask, but would allude to the fact like, what if the two of us ended up pregnant at the same time? Anne and I once had a conversation that was like, what if that happens? And we both looked at each other and we're like, we'll figure it out. Like inherently we believe that we will figure it out, right? We always have, we always will. We'll find a way for both of us. AOA is our first baby. And, you know, you'll, we'll always figure it out. For me, when I was fundraising and I was pregnant, I, I carried so much unnecessary stress about do I tell investors? Do I not tell investors? How, when do I tell investors, et cetera, et cetera, which is just 
unnecessary thoughts in my mind and unnecessary time spent on those emotions when eventually I developed the confidence, you know, to be like, this is my life. It's not anybody else's life. And I'm still executing and I can still do my job and I can balance the way that I want to balance. And, you know, again, if my husband were running this company, nobody would have been asking him. It's a tough call to figure out when to tell people or how, how to approach that. But I could see how that would cause a lot of uncertainty and stress. Most people say that their business is their baby. So you had two COVID babies, you had an actual baby and your business creation during COVID. So there's definitely some blessings that came during the COVID time for you, which is great to. Oh, for, for sure. I think, uh, yeah, being able to be home and still, still like deliver all the business. And again, in my case, thankfully have a family member help out eventually, you know, made both areas be successful. I have a thriving toddler now and uh, thankfully a thriving business. Awesome. So what's next for the thriving business? What's on the plan the next couple of years for AOI? So excitingly, just this week, might probably be a little bit later when you actually announce this. Our first peer review publication was accepted into a top journal, which we're very proud of, but also very excited about. And I think that publication is, when we think about the future, really going to help get that validation from the scientific community and bring more people on board on the AOA story. For us directly right now, we are actively developing our technology um, to become a commercial grade assay. So this is one that would be an IBD assay, that would be a distributable kit, that would be able to send out to labs. So active development right now. Uh, We're actually also actively enrolling our clinical trial for FDA clearance, um, upcoming FDA meetings. So really focus on just developing the technology and bringing to the clinic the first asset for a test in ovarian cancer. And then from there, looking to grow out the platform. We have a we have a, we have a desire to focus on women's health, and we're looking to test out a bunch of other cancers and see where else we can expand. We're currently raising our Series A. These markets are are not friendly, so obviously that's that's very much on the horizon for us. And yeah, and then uh, we'll be growing our team towards the end of this year. Great, that's very impressive, and you're on the path to FDA clearance and potentially, to your point, diversifying maybe to other areas of women's health or other areas in need with your platform. So you are hiring and you're based in New York. So if anyone's listening, reach out to Oriana as well to join the journey of making a big impact in women's health. Do you have any closing thoughts for anyone who wants to get into the industry, maybe MBA students that are interested in changing the game in women's health or diagnostics, health tech? Yeah. Follow people, not companies or products. Um, I think a lot of the time, especially coming out of an MBA, a top MBA, you're very hireable by some top name companies. A lot of the times those top name companies aren't the ones that are going to be in the trenches with you or, or managers that are going to teach you and guide you. And if you really, really have an inkling for entrepreneurship, go work for a startup that's bootstrapped and hustling real hard. Go work for a founder that will teach and mentor you. Be an intern again, right? Like leave your ego at the door and be incredibly humble. Be willing to learn, be willing to get feedback and to be coached and uh, follow people and not products. That's excellent. I love that. Following people and not products. Well, thank you, Oriana. It's incredible to learn about your story, your journey, the building of AOA, and I'm excited to see the future FDA approval and success of the company. Thanks so much, Jacqueline.